0: chapter four of eldorado by baroness orzie read for librivox dot by karen savage in june two thousand and seven chapter four mademoiselle lange the green room was crowded when De Bates and st st just arrived there after the performance the older man cast a hasty glance through the open door The crowd did not suit his purpose, and he dragged his companion hurriedly away from the contemplation of Mademoiselle Lange, sitting in a far corner of the room, surrounded by an admiring throng, and by innumerable floral tributes offered to her beauty and to her success. Debats without a word led the way back towards the stage. Here, by the dim light of tallow candles, fixed in sconces against the surrounding walls, the scene-shifters were busy moving drop-scenes, back-cloths, and wings, and paid no heed to the two men who strolled slowly up and down, silently, each wrapped in his own thoughts. Armand walked with his hands buried in his breeches pockets, his head bent forward on his chest, but every now and again he threw a quick, apprehensive glances around him, whenever a firm step echoed along the empty stage, or a voice rang clearly through the now deserted theatre. "'Are we wise to wait here?' he asked, speaking to himself rather than to his companion. He was not anxious about his own safety, but the words of de had impressed themselves upon his mind. "'Heron and his spies we have always with us.' From the green room a separate foyer and exit led directly out into the street. Gradually the sound of many voices, the loud laughter and occasional snatches of song, which for the past half-hour had proceeded from that part of the house, became more subdued and more rare. One by one the friends of the artists were leaving the theatre, after having paid the usual banal compliments to those whom they favoured, or presented the accustomed offering of flowers to the brightest star of the night. The actors were the first to retire, then the older actresses, the ones who could no longer command a court of admirers around them. They all filed out of the green room, and crossed the stage to where, at the back, a narrow, rickety wooden stairs led to their so-called dressing-rooms, tiny, dark cubicles, ill-lighted, unventilated, where some half-dozen of the lesser stars tumbled over one another, while removing wigs and grease-paint. Armand and de Bats watched this exodus, both with equal impatience. Mademoiselle Lange was the last to leave the green-room. For some time, since the crowd had become thinner around her, Armand had contrived to catch glimpses of her slight, elegant figure. A short passage led from the stage to the green-room door, which was wide open, and at the corner of this passage the young man had paused from time to time in his walk gazing with earnest admiration at the dainty outline of the young girl's head with its wig of powdered curls that seemed scarcely whiter than the creamy brilliance of her skin de did not watch mademoiselle lange beyond casting impatient looks in the direction of the crowd that prevented her leaving the green room He did watch Armand, however, noted his eager look, his brisk and alert movements, the obvious glances of admiration which he cast in the direction of the young actress, and this seemed to afford him a considerable amount of contentment. The best part of an hour had gone by since the fall of the curtain, before Mademoiselle Lange finally dismissed her many admirers, and de had the satisfaction of seeing her running down the passage, turning back occasionally in order to bid gay good-nights to the loiterers who were loath to part from her. She was a child in all her movements, quite unconscious of self or of her own charms, but frankly delighted with her success. She was still dressed in the ridiculous hoops and panniers pertaining to her part, and the powdered peruke hid the charm of her own hair. The costume gave a certain stilted air to her unaffected personality, which by this very sense of contrast was essentially fascinating. In her arms she held a huge sheaf of sweet-scented narcissi, the spoils of some favoured spot far away in the south. Armand thought that never in his life had he seen anything so winsome or so charming. Having at last said the positive final adieu, Mademoiselle Lange, with a happy little sigh, turned to run down the passage. She came face to face with Armand, and gave a sudden little gasp of terror. It was not good these days to come on any loiterer unawares. But already de had quickly joined his friend, and his smooth, pleasant voice and podgy, beringed hand extended towards Mademoiselle Lange were sufficient to reassure her. You were so surrounded in the green room, Mademoiselle," he said courteously, "I did not venture to press in among the crowd of your admirers; yet I had the great wish to present my respectful congratulations in person." "Ah! c'est ce cher de Bats!" exclaimed Mademoiselle gaily, in that exquisitely rippling voice of hers; "and where in the world do you spring from, my friend?" "Hush!" he whispered, holding her small, bemittent hand in his, and putting one finger to his lips with an urgent entreaty for discretion. "Not my name, I beg of you, fair one." bah she retorted lightly even though her full lips trembled now as she spoke and belied her very words you need have no fear whilst you are in this part of the house it is an understood thing that the committee of general security does not send its spies behind the curtain of a theatre why if all of us actors and actresses were sent to the guillotine there would be no play on the morrow artistes are not replaceable in a few hours those that are in existence must perforce be spared or the citizens who govern us now would not know where to spend their evenings But though she spoke so airily, and with her accustomed gaiety, it was easily perceived that even on this childish mind the dangers which beset every one these days had already imprinted their mark of suspicion and of caution. "'Come into my dressing-room,' she said. "'I must not tarry here any longer, for they will be putting out the lights. But I have a room to myself, and we can talk there quite agreeably.' She led the way across the stage, towards the wooden stairs armand who during this brief colloquy between his friend and the young girl had kept discreetly in the background felt undecided what to do but at a peremptory sign from Debats, he too turned in the wake of the gay little lady who ran swiftly up the rickety steps humming snatches of popular songs the while and not turning to see if indeed the two men were following her She had the sheaf of Narcissi still in her arms, and the door of her tiny dressing-room being open, she ran straight in and threw the flowers down in a confused, sweet-scented mass upon the small table that stood at one end of the room, littered with pots and bottles, letters, mirrors, powder-puffs, silk stockings, and cambric handkerchiefs. Then she turned and faced the two men, a merry look of unalterable gaiety dancing in her eyes. "Shut the door, mon ami," she said to De Bats, "and after that sit down where you can, so long as it is not on my most precious pot of unguent, or a box of costliest powder." While De Bats did as he was told, she turned to Armand, and said, with a pretty tone of interrogation in her melodious voice, "Monsieur-" Saint-Just, at your service, mademoiselle," said Armand, bowing very low in the most approved style obtaining at the English court. "Saint-Just?" she repeated, a look of puzzlement in her brown eyes. "Surely-" A kinsman of Citizen Saint Just, whom no doubt you know, Mademoiselle," he exclaimed. "My friend Armand Saint Just interposed. Debats is practically a newcomer in Paris. He lives in England habitually. In England," she exclaimed. "Oh, do tell me all about England. I would love to go there. Perhaps I may have to go some day. Oh, do sit down, Debats," she continued, talking rather volubly, even as a delicate blush heightened the color in her cheeks under the look of obvious admiration from Armand Saint Just's expressive eyes. She swept a handful of delicate cambric and silk from off a chair, making room for de portly figure. Then she sat upon the sofa, and with an inviting gesture and a call from the eyes, she bade Armand sit down next to her. She leaned back against the cushions, and the table being close by, she stretched out a hand and once more took up the bunch of Narcissi, and while she talked to Armand she held the snow-white blooms quite close to her face. So close, in fact, that he could not see her mouth and chin, only her dark eyes shone across at him over the heads of the blossoms. "'Tell me all about England,' she reiterated, settling herself down among the cushions like a spoilt child who was about to listen to an oft-told favourite story. Armand was vexed at the was sitting there. He felt he could have told this dainty lady quite a good deal about England, if only his pompous fat friend would have had the good sense to go away. As it was, he felt unusually timid and gauche, not quite knowing what to say, a fact which seemed to amuse Mademoiselle Lange not a little. "'I am very fond of England,' he said lamely. "'My sister is married to an Englishman, and I myself have taken up my permanent residence there.' "'Among the society of emigres?' she queried. Then, as Armand made no reply, de interposed quickly. "'Oh, you need not fear to admit it, my good Armand. Mademoiselle Lange has many friends among the emigres. Have you not, Mademoiselle?' "'Yes, of course,' she replied lightly. "'I have friends everywhere. Their political views have nothing to do with me. Artistes, I think, should have naught to do with politics. You see, Citizen Saint-Just, I never inquired of you what were your views. Your name and kinship would proclaim you a partisan of Citizen Robespierre, yet I find you in the company of Monsieur de Batz, and you tell me that you live in England.' He is no partisan of Citizen Robespierre, again interposed to In fact, Mademoiselle, I may safely tell you, I think, that my friend has but one ideal on this earth, whom he has set up in a shrine, and whom he worships with all the ardour of a Christian for his God. How romantic! she said, and she looked straight at Armand. Tell me, monsieur, is your ideal a woman or a man? His look answered her, even before he boldly spoke the two words. A woman. She took a deep draught of sweet, intoxicating scent from the narcissi, and his gaze once more brought blushes to her cheeks. De Batz's good-humoured laugh helped her to hide this unwanted excess of confusion. "'That was well turned, friend Armand,' he said lightly. "'But I assure you, Mademoiselle, that before I brought him here to-night, his ideal was a man.' "'A man?' she exclaimed, with a contemptuous little pout. "'Who was it?' "'I know no other name for him but that of a small, insignificant flower.' The Scarlet Pimpernel replied, "Debats, the Scarlet Pimpernel!" She ejaculated, dropping the flowers suddenly and gazing on Armand with wide, wondering eyes. And do you know him, Monsieur? He was frowning, despite himself, despite the delight which he felt at sitting so close to this charming little lady and feeling that, in a measure, his presence and his personality interested her. But he felt irritated with Debats and angered at what he considered the latter's indiscretion. To him, the very name of his leader was almost a sacred one. He was one of those enthusiastic devotees who only cared to name the idol of their dreams with bated breath, and only in the ears of those who would understand and sympathize. Again he felt that if only he could have been alone with Mademoiselle, he could have told her all about the Scarlet Pimpernel, knowing that in her he would find a ready listener, a helping and loving heart. But as it was, he merely replied tamely enough, "'Yes, Mademoiselle, I do know him.' "'You have seen him?' she queried eagerly. "'Spoken to him?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, do tell me all about him. You know quite a number of us in France have the greatest possible admiration for your national hero. We know, of course, that he is an enemy of our government, but, oh, we feel that he is not an enemy of France because of that. We are a nation of heroes too, monsieur,' she added with a pretty, proud toss of the head. "'We can appreciate bravery and resource, and we love the mystery that surrounds the personality of your scarlet Pimpernel. But since you know him, monsieur, tell me, what is he like?' Armand was smiling again. He was yielding himself up wholly to the charm which emanated from this young girl's entire being, from her gaiety and her unaffectedness, her enthusiasm and that obvious artistic temperament which caused her to feel every sensation with superlative keenness and thoroughness. What is he like? she insisted. That, mademoiselle, he replied, I am not at liberty to tell you. Not at liberty to tell me? she exclaimed. But, monsieur, if I command you— at risk of falling forever under the ban of your displeasure, Mademoiselle, I would still remain silent on that subject. She gazed on him with obvious astonishment. It was quite an unusual thing for the spoilt darling of an admiring public to be thus openly thwarted in her whims. How tiresome and pedantic! she said with a shrug of her pretty shoulders and a moo of discontent. And, oh, how ungallant! You have learnt ugly English ways, monsieur, for there, I am told, men hold their women kind very scant esteem there she added turning with a mock air of hopelessness towards de bats am i not a most unlucky woman for the past two years i have used my best endeavours to catch sight of that interesting scarlet pimpernel here do i meet monsieur who actually knows him so he says and he is so ungallant that he even refuses to satisfy the first cravings of my just curiosity citizen saint-just will tell you nothing now mademoiselle rejoined de bats with his good-humoured laugh it is my presence, I assure you, which is setting a seal upon his lips. He is, believe me, aching to confide in you, to share in your enthusiasm, and to see your beautiful eyes glowing in response to his ardour when he describes to you the exploits of that prince of heroes. En tête a tête, one day you will, I know, worm every secret out of my discreet friend Armand. Mademoiselle made no comment on this—that is to say, no audible comment. But she buried the whole of her face for a few seconds among the flowers, and Armand from amongst those flowers caught sight of a pair of very bright brown eyes, which shone on him with a puzzled look. She said nothing more about the Scarlet Pimpernel or about England just then, but after a while she began talking of more indifferent subjects—the state of the weather, the price of food, the discomforts of her own house now that the servants had been put on perfect equality with their masters. Armand soon gathered that the burning questions of the day— the horrors of massacres, the raging turmoil of politics, had not affected her very deeply as yet. She had not troubled her pretty head very much about the social and humanitarian aspect of the present seething revolution. She did not really wish to think about it at all. An artiste to her fingertips, she was spending her young life in earnest work, striving to attain perfection in her art, absorbed in study during the day, and in the expression of what she had learnt in the evenings. The terrors of the guillotine affected her a little, but somewhat vaguely still she had not realized that any dangers could assail her whilst she worked for the artistic delectation of the public it was not that she did not understand what went on around her but that her artistic temperament and her environment had kept her aloof from it all the horrors of the place de la Révolution made her shudder but only in the same way as the tragedies of monsieur racine or of sophocles which she had studied caused her to shudder and she had exactly the same sympathy for poor Queen Marie-Antoinette as she had for Mary Stuart, and shed as many tears for King Louis as she did for Polyuct. Once de Bats mentioned the Dauphin, but Mademoiselle put up her hand quickly, and said in a trembling voice, whilst the tears gathered in her eyes, Do not speak of the child to me, de Bats. What can I, a lonely, hard-working woman, do to help him? I try not to think of him. For if I did, knowing my own helplessness, I feel that I could hate my countrymen and speak my bitter hatred of them across the footlights, which would be more than foolish," she added naively, for it would not help the child, and I should be sent to the guillotine. But, oh, sometimes I feel that I would gladly die if only that poor little child-martyr were restored to those who love him, and given back once more to joy and happiness. But they would not take my life for his, I am afraid," she concluded, smiling through her tears. My life is of no value in comparison with his. Soon after this she dismissed her two visitors. De well content with the result of this evening's entertainment, wore an urbane, bland smile on his rubicund face. Armand, somewhat serious, and not a little in love, made the hand-kiss with which he took his leave last as long as he could. "'You will come and see me again, Citizen Saint-Just?' she asked, after that preliminary leave-taking. "'At your service, Mademoiselle,' he replied with alacrity. "'How long do you stay in Paris?' I may be called away at any time. Well, then, come to-morrow. I shall be free towards four o'clock. Square du Roule. You cannot miss the house. Any one there will tell you where lives citizeness Lange. At your service, mademoiselle,' he replied. The words sounded empty and meaningless, but his eyes, as they took final leave of her, spoke the gratitude and the joy which he felt. End of chapter 4